Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Hey, hey, friends, and welcome to this episode of Growth Island. Today, we're going to talk about something that is close to all of us. It's about friendships. So how do you find those good friends? What is a good friend? Well, for that, I found an expert on the subject. I found Lydia Denworth. She wrote a really good book about friendships. It's called Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life Fundamental Bond. It's something that affects all of us. You say that you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. <laughs> So what do we actually do? She is also an editor for Scientific Americans. She's a writer for Psychology Today. She's been appearing a ton of uh, amazing places and she's just a wealth of knowledge. So I'm extremely grateful to have Lydia on. Lydia, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. How did you end up writing a book on friendship? Well, I this is my third book. So I was, when I finished the last one, I was sort of casting around for what I might do next. And I'm a science writer by profession. So my job takes me out or it did pre-pandemic to conferences to talk to meet people. And mainly I have to listen to scientists talk about what they're working on, what they think is interesting and surprising. And I was noticing that more and more people were talking about friendship and talking about it in a way that seemed different from how most of us think about friendship. So this was neuroscientists and primatologists and evolutionary biologists. And it seemed like there was a sort of additional story to tell about friendship, about how seriously scientists are taking it now and how much respect they're giving it. And I think a lot of us take friendship a little bit for granted, or we did before the pandemic anyway, <laughs> when we all went into social isolation. So I was intrigued by the science. I thought there was a story to tell, but also I thought, hey, I could spend a couple of years digging into this topic because who wouldn't want to learn a little bit more about friendship and then maybe hopefully get to be a little bit better at cool. being a good friend, right? Yeah. So what is, I think many people have different understandings of a friendship. Many people are like, ah, that's my friend, that's my friend. And other people are so like, how do you understand a friendship? So, yeah. So technically, I mean, one way that people think of friends is literally they are the people you are not related to and that you don't have sex with. <laughs> that's one way. That's one way of thinking of it. But what I actually, my definition of friendship is based on the scientists and especially evolutionary biologists who have figured out that what we're really talking about here are close, strong, positive bonds. And they need three, they have three requirements. So this is my drop, my minimum definition for friendship is that it's long lasting and stable relationship. It's positive, makes you feel good. And it's reciprocal or cooperative. So there's a back and forth and a give and take. And a lot of the other things that we think of when we think of friendship, like trust and loyalty and companionship, they can drop into those three buckets, I think, the long-lasting, positive, reciprocal. And what's long-lasting? Well, well, it just, it means, so you can like someone from the minute you meet, but it takes time to develop a, a good, strong, deep bond, right? And so 
it means if you translate this definition of friendship into what it means to be a good friend, it's to be a steady, reliable presence in someone's life. So that's kind of what the long lasting stable part is a steady, reliable presence and then a positive relationship. So it actually, it needs to make both people feel good. And that sounds simple, but there's a lot of friendships in our lives that are a little more complicated than that, right? And we can come back to that and what that means. But, and then the last part, the reciprocal cooperative part is that it doesn't have to be a kind of, well, so it translates into being a steady, reliable presence, being positive, appreciating your friends, telling them what you like about them, things like that. I mean, we don't always do that with our friends. We don't stop and say, you know, I really appreciate this about you, or you make me feel good when you do this or whatever it is. And the reciprocal cooperative part means to show up, to be helpful, right? And I mean, show up in the broadest sense of the phrase, show up in person when that's possible and important, even if it's maybe a little inconvenient for you, show up online, show up by texting and saying, hey, I know you have this thing today. Just want to tell you I'm thinking about you or just checking in, see how you're doing and show up when it's hard <laughs> for you as is part of what I'm talking about here. Being helpful, having this give and take in a relationship turns out to be really important. It's not a, and I'm not talking about like a, a strict accounting of you did this for me. So now I do that for you. In fact, with our best relationships, we get past that and we kind of forget. We stop keeping score. And that's a beautiful thing, but it does matter that over time, there's a kind of back and forth and equality, right? And that it can't be that one person is doing all the giving and the other, all the taking, or one is doing all the talking and the other one is always the one listening and never sort of getting to share. So that's for me what friendship is. And the reason that definition is important is because on some levels it clarifies friendship but it also blurs the lines in terms of who can be friends with who. Because by my definition, we're, what we're talking about is a quality relationship with somebody you're really close to and that you can count on. And that actually can be a romantic partner or a biological relative or not. Like some of those relationships are complicated, right? So we, so if you, well, let me put it this way. To me, Friend is a qualitative word that tells me about the quality of your relationship with someone. And if you tell me that your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend is your best friend, you're adding to what I know about your relationship, right? You're telling me that there's this extra sort of special piece to it. And we, and so I guess I, I think of it as this really strong quality bond that is the thing, the science tells us that those kinds of relationships are critical for our health. Over the long haul, they're as important as diet and exercise in keeping you healthy and living a long life. And that's the piece. You may think friendship is good for you, but most of us do not understand just how good for you it is. But to get that help, that physical sort of benefit to your health and longevity, it needs to fit this definition that I just gave you. Got it. So I definitely also see that community is something that I'm hearing more and more about. There's a lot of discussion about the blue zones, whether it's actually correct or not, or whether they actually are places where they didn't count the age properly. But at least one of the things that they're finding there is a strong community and yes. some long-lasting friendships, right? Low stress, mm. other things as well. But uh, it seems to be one of the things that characterizes all the blue zones. 
So what's the difference on a good friend and a great friend? Yeah, I guess it's uh, it goes back to some of what I was just saying. So a great friend is really someone who you can count on and who you will. My closest friends are the people that I can call at any time to say, I need to talk to you about this thing. And then there's a whole lot of people who I really enjoy and I spend time with and I think of as good friends, but they're not. I'm not going to go that extra. I would worry about sort of intruding on them with my own stuff that's going on, right? Whereas your great friends, I think you feel will be there for you. Um, that's the, that's at least that's my, I don't know. What is it for you? Do you what's the difference between your good and your great friends? <laughs> I would actually agree a lot. So the great friends are for me. So some people I just feel I have more fun with and it's more easy <laughs> to be with. It's yeah. kind of like chemistry, right? That yes, there's like totally. levels, like you can meet people and they're, they're great people and so on. And then those people where it's just, it sinks in a different level, you connect in a different level. So for me, it's that part. And then it's also that I can trust them, that I'd like this. A few people that I know, those are the ones that I would call. And the fun thing when we talk about it, um, several of those are not the ones that I see that much any longer. Several of those mm -hmm. are actually some of my oldest friends that we almost mm -hmm. lost connection with, but I still have a feeling like if everything burned down, they That's would still be thought. some of the ones that I could count on the most, which is, right. which is also right. put the whole like historical perspective in, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why the long lasting part of friendship is so important because when you have shared history, that gives a richness and a depth to your relationship. That said, I also have found that a lot of people hang on to some of those long-term relationships and think that they are good for them when in fact they'll say, oh, we have all this shared history, but I find this person really draining. And so I do think it's important to recognize that shared history is a wonderful thing and it can make a relationship really great, but it by itself is not necessarily enough. They, they have to be there for you and they have to still make you feel good. And sometimes you grow apart. I remember listening to a radio and they were talking about like that friend that Semi toxic friend that's always negative, pulling you mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. and I found at least that's been very hard when you're kind of growing and so on. It's kind of also letting go of some people, like you still love them with the yeah. friendship and so on, but you can see like you're just growing apart. That can be tough to make that decision. I know that's something many people struggle with, like those, they don't necessarily have to be toxic relationships. Sometimes it's also just growing apart. Actually, I think that the hardest, the toxic relationships on some level are easier because they're so clear cut, right? You know, this isn't a good, healthy relationship anymore, even though it can still be hard to walk away from people. It's at least, you know, you probably should. It's those ambiguous relationships in the middle that are harder. What I, I mean, one of the things that I have learned is how important it is that these, at least a core group of relationships at the center of your life are really strong and positive in all the ways I've just described. And if somebody else is trying to claim, well, let me put it this way. We have limited time in our day and in our lives, right? And we give a certain amount. We have to put in time both to make and to maintain friendships. And so we got to give the bulk of it to those first core people who really give us, who sustain our soul. Mm. Um, the other people, the ones that, you know, that you're talking about that feel negative or that, uh, what I like to imagine is that you have these friendship circles, right? You have your inner circle and then you have this sort of one out and another one out and they get further and further. 
you could shuffle people to the outer rings <laughs> of your friendship life. Even if you don't say that, it's about how you, uh, what you get from the relationship and how much time and effort you're going to put into it. And so it, you don't have to cut them out of your life, but you can sort of, you should be very aware of who is, who serves you best emotionally. And this brings me to one of the other questions that I had down. So there's this classic saying that you are the average of the five people you spend mm -hmm. the most time with. What's your take on that? Do you agree or is it a BS or uh, <laughs> what, <laughs> what? Oh, it's like a lot of things. It's got some truth to it and, and not and some BS. But I do think it's it's worth thinking about and examining. So the idea that your five closest friends are reflections of who you are and, and that that's if you take them together, that makes you you. I think there's something to that. I mean, we, to some extent, are who we hang out with. We And if we... So a lot of my friends are writers like I am, or, or they're journalists, or they're, cre you know, they're creative people. They're middle-aged women like me. They're mothers, maybe. They're, there's some of that. I mean, that's the obvious piece, right? They reflect you because friendship is about having shared worldview. It's about often a shared sense of humor. It's about enjoying some of the same things. I mean, quite literally, and this is fascinating to me, we've always known that there's a phrase uh, or a cliche in English about how birds of a feather flock together, right? And you're attracted to people who are like you. But, and there is some truth to that. It turns out that it goes all the way into our brains, the way that we process the world. So there's new neuroscience out finding that we literally hear and see the world more like our closest friends than we do the people that we're less close to, which is essentially like the neural version of laughing at the same jokes. <laughs> and neuroscientists can actually see that happening in your brain. They can predict, they, they did this study where they took a couple hundred um, students in a graduate program and they looked at them at the beginning of the year and then later and they were and they mapped out their relationships and then they did this test where they put them in the fMRI where they could do imaging of their brain they showed them videos and they could see how the different people's brains were responding to the videos and they could predict just by looking at the brain responses who was friends with who right and so wow. it's just I think it's really cool on some levels it makes perfect sense it's exactly what you always knew. But on others, it's profound, right? It's telling you that the, the similarities that you have with people in the world go right down to the way your brain processes a video and, and the things that you pay attention to. And it's not just one part of your brain, it's all parts of your brain. And so, um, so we should be aware of that. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to seek out people who are different from you because we get a lot from that. But, you know, there apparently is this real biological draw to people that are like you. The other thing that happens is that the more time you spend together, the more your brains are going to become aligned. And so the question now, and they're still researching this, is, is how much do we start out the same and how much do we change by virtue of being friends? And the answer, like a lot of things, is probably some of both, right? Of You're drawn to someone to begin with because you share things in common and then you become more alike as you discuss the world. That makes a lot of sense. Did I have a ton of questions more? So I'm just going to yeah. state three questions and we won't take them okay. all at the same time. Okay. But then you have an right. idea or something. So one of them is it can sound very transactional. Who's getting, mm. what are you getting out of it? And mm. we'll get it. 
The second question is, how do you become a really good friend? And the third one, what do you do if you like moved and so on and you don't have that many friends? How do you then mm -hmm. establish and we have mm -hmm. that long term? So those are some of the ones that I've loved to touch on. But if we start on the transactional okay. one, some people might be like listening and being like, yeah, intermediate transaction isn't yeah. actually about. Well, I want to go back to what I said before about how in our best relationships, it, we've lost sight of any transactional nature to it. And it's and, and it shouldn't feel that way. I mean, you were talking about the people that you just really feel connected to and enjoy. And so it should feel natural to want to do the things that I'm talking about and to, but I do think that sometimes we are so focused on whether people are good friends to us that we fail to pay attention to whether we are good friends to them. And so maybe there's a way to think of this, not as transactional, but as reciprocal, like I said, to think about, okay, how healthy is the back and forth here? And not keeping score, not counting. You had me to dinner. Now I have to have you to dinner or whatever it is, but just sort of making sure that there's a back and forth. I mean, one of my closest friends, every time we get together, we sort of say, okay, tell me your headlines. Tell me what's going on in your life that we need to talk about. And then we make sure that we both get to do that. And sometimes one of us has a whole lot more going on in our lives than the other. And so you take up more of the airtime and other times it's the reverse or it's more even. But like that, just that convention of that asking that question and making sure that that's going to be part of the conversation, that you each get a turn is more what I'm talking about. And I don't think of that as transactional at all. I just think of that as a kind of egalitarian sort of loving approach to a friendship. Does that answer your question? Is that, uh, that I'm trying, there's a lot more to say about that probably, but I know yeah. you have a lot of questions. So, so mm. how, because I think that's probably one of the most important questions to ask is like, how do you become a really good friend? Like yeah. not saying what are you looking in front in someone else? The same if you're looking for a romantic partner, mm -hmm. people focus on, I want this person. I think the important question is who do you have to be to attract that partner or those kind of friends, right? Well, so I said earlier that for me, this definition of friendship that scientists have kind of come up with, and I, I, I was talking about the evolutionary biologists, but the truth is that anthropologists and people from like it all kind of, there's a similarity to how we see these things. So this positive, long lasting, reliable, reciprocal back and forth that crosses the, it's a pretty universal definition, right? So to be a good friend, you need to think about those things. So like I said, you should be a steady, reliable presence to, for someone and uh, not just call them when you need them, but try to show up for them. You should be kind. You should be thoughtful um, and you should help, like I said. So I think those things, and you mentioned trust. I mean, trust is hugely important, right? So that to me, fits into being kind. And so not going around and talking about what your friend confessed to you to other people or being that would certainly fit in the positive box of friendship. You need a relationship to, to feel good for everybody. So you should be trustworthy. You should be loyal. You do not have to. I mean, there's two things, and this gets a little bit to your other, your next question about how to make friends, especially if you're in a new place. But I think, I think it also addresses the question of how to be a good friend is to remember, especially in adulthood, that friendship requires two other things. One is time and the other is vulnerability. And so you've got to be able to put in the time or you have to be aware that you need to put in the time. And that's something that especially 
So that's easy when you're like a teenager or you're in university, right? You're with all these people your same age. You'll never be with more people your same age again, right? And the number of potential friends is huge. And you spend a lot of time together naturally. And so then you start to, it sifts out and you start to see of all those people, who are you drawn to? Who likes you back? They have to like you back, right? What, you know, and you start to make friends. It as adults, we have to work at that a little bit more because life gets busy. We have careers, maybe we have families, maybe we have both, and uh, it gets a lot harder to have that kind of time. And we forget, though, that you need to put in that time to get to that deeper friendship. And so sometimes we're like, oh, I, I met these people at this thing, but I don't know. I don't feel like anybody wants to be friends with me. But that's too soon <laughs> to make that judgment. It's you need in fact, there's a study, somebody actually counted up how much time you have to spend with someone to go to consider them a friend, a good friend, and a best friend. It's 50 hours of time together to go from an acquaintance to a friend, about 80 or 90 hours to consider someone a good friend, and about 200 hours of time together before you consider someone a best friend. And that kind of time is, like I said, easy to come by if you're living in a, if you're at a university and you live in a dorm with people and you eat with them and you're in class with them and you party with them on the weekend. It's a lot harder to do if you're just having the occasional dinner or lunch or, you know, whatever it is. So, Lydia, where do, we, where do I find that study? Because I actually had a concrete question, which you just answered. If there's ah, any studies okay. that you put into <laughs> it's a guy how long it makes sense yeah. if a hobby or see someone before you have an idea about whether it makes sense to continue. So that was the study that you just mentioned, basically. Yeah, it's a researcher named Jeff Hall at the University of Kansas here in the U.S. I wrote about this. It's in the book and I wrote about it in Psychology Today. And uh, it was by far the most popular blog post I ever did for Psychology Today was my write-up of his study. And uh, so, yes, you can find it there. He And he, you'll get more explanation of exactly how he did this. It was both college students who were new on campus and then adults who had moved like you just were describing in we're in a new job in a new place and meeting people. And the thing is, time matters a lot, but time is not the only thing. I mean, we, you know, in an office, you might spend 600 hours with somebody in a year and not become friends, right? So it's only one piece, but it is a necessary piece. And then the second thing I was bringing up was the vulnerability question, which is that you do have to put yourself out there a little bit, both Physically, you have to actually show, you have to go out and try to meet people, right? It's sitting on your couch, it's very hard to make friends on your own. And then also to get to a deeper place in friendship does require sort of sharing a little bit of yourself. And some of us are really nervous about doing that. Good news is that people like us more than we think. There's a, there's another study that's, there's a couple of, there's sort of a line of research into the idea that actually most people enjoy talking to new people and they, or afterwards, like they might not think they want to, but if you ask them, did you enjoy that conversation? Were you glad you met that person? They'll say yes, more often than not. And we get so caught up in our own heads about, oh, I said the stupidest thing or I should, or I didn't say anything smart. I didn't say anything or I should have done this, right? They probably thought I was whatever, blah, blah, blah. That's what we do. That's the loop that goes in our head. And yeah, maybe sometimes there's some truth to that, but it turns out that most people are giving us more benefit of the doubt than we think, right? They give it, they like us more than we think. So that's a good thing to remember too. And so as an adult, you got to put yourself out there a little bit and it's harder. And it is true that everybody has less time and it might not 
like the first couple people you try might not work. And I'm not trying to minimize how hard this can be for people. I know it is. But I also do think that we think it should be easier as adults than it is. We kind of forget <laughs> what went into it. Right? And that's, I've had several coaching sessions with different people where everyone's moved on. They've been doing extremely well mm -hmm. um, career-wise. And they spend all of their focus on working and getting to the top. But in that process, they haven't spent the time as well to take care of their friendships and so on. And now they're at a time in life where they look at where they think it should be easy enough. Often saying that it takes time, like people are busy. And often yeah. the, a lot of the people that you might want to have as friends, they're very busy people and have a lot of yeah. friends. Yeah. Especially if you're the, like the busy type, then you often want people that are also like in that busy and they're cool. I have one friend called Mark De Silva. And he is, I went to his wedding and I have never met that many amazing people before in my life. Yeah, yeah. It was just like everyone there, what do you like? Wow, these people are so sweet and so heartful, right? So he's a person that just attracts people. That's the kind of person you want to be friends with. But that also means he has a ton of good friends already. So it's hard to get time with him. Right, right. So it's also you got to find ways where you're contributing value to them. It's at least what I've told some mm -hmm. of my coaches is can you find things that they love to do as well that you love to do and can you then propose things where you have a better bond together than potentially right. just going for lunch is there anything that could be more interesting so people will find and prioritize that time what do you think about that yeah no i think that's great i mean i, I was saying that it's uh, it has a lot to do with shared interests and i agree that i don't know if you both um like to go hiking say planning A friendship around a walk or something. I mean, getting together and talking to someone while you're also out exercising or hiking or doing whatever you enjoy is like such a win-win, right? Across the board, you're getting exercise, you're talking to someone, you're doing something you both enjoy. And I've heard people say that like when they've moved to new cities, they'll look for, it sounds corny, right? But there's new, there'll be like a craft beer club <laughs> or something in this new city. And so they'll go to these funky bars that make their own beer and they'll find other people who like that or they'll suggest that as a way, as a thing to go do with somebody new. And I think that's it. The reason people give that advice all the time is because it works. <laughs> so like I said, it sounds kind of corny, but it does work. So I agree with you that, well, that the doing things together is, is a useful is a useful thing all through friendship, but especially at the beginning. And it also is more true, a little bit more true for men that, so there's stereotypes of men and women and how they do friendship. And the stereotype is that women do friendship face to face, which means that they talk, 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 talk all the time. Right. And that men do friendship side by side. So they do things together. They play sports or watch sports or sit next to each other on bar stools or whatever it is. But There's less of that intense self-disclosure or discussion of how you feel about things. It's a stereotype, but so it doesn't apply to everyone, but there's some truth to it, right? And a lot of that difference is cultural. It's in what we teach men to expect and women to expect in their friendships. But but so, I don't know. Now I'm forgetting what your actual question was at the beginning, but I think no, I've no, probably covered it. <laughs> yeah, you did. You did. <laughs> okay. So a question that often comes up as well is friendship between men and women. Yeah, totally possible. And obviously it gets complicated by romantic interest, but there's a lot of people who are good friends. The classic joke is like a lot of women, like their gay male friends can be their very best friends, right? Because <laughs> you get rid of all the sexual tension. And But I think 
it is one of these things too, culturally, that we have a harder time with sometimes that the idea that men and women can really be friends independently. But I've also heard of, so among adolescent girls, I was just talking to someone who was saying that his daughter had all male friends in high school and that's who she was close to. She, the things she liked to do were, there were more boys involved and but and some of the other people in this conversation, it was a talk I was giving, were saying like, well, that's because girl friendship among girls and the teenage years can be difficult. And this girl's probably like, this is simpler and this is who I like and who I want to talk to. And so I think we should encourage that and we shouldn't say it's not possible. It It is true, though, that your instincts about friendship might be a little bit different if you're a girl or a boy, a woman or a man. And so but I am all for supporting the cross cross gender cross sex friendships yeah what are some things we can do to accelerate friendships so you talked about vulnerability and time mm-hmm. and i found that um, i participated in something called came to north which is you say personal development personal leadership for teenagers like 14 mm-hmm. to 90 mm-hmm. and there we have an exercise called if you knew me better ah. people in a circle and then they share something like for a minute or two minutes, if you knew me better, you would know this. And okay. I've seen, it's crazy how you've known someone for a day and suddenly you almost feel closer to them than people you've known for years because you share something very vulnerable. Right. So actually, I mean, and there is a f- kind of famous study out there. I think it's 36, 36 questions that lead to loves. Have you heard yeah. of this? Yeah. yeah. So it's basically getting exactly at what you're talking about. And the actual questions, if people sign up for my newsletter on my website, you can get as a bonus the actual questions. The researchers let me <laughs> put it up. But but it was it was done when people were studying romantic relationships in the lab. They needed a way to generate closeness quickly. And so they created all these questions. I mean, this is you know what it is, but I'll explain in case other people don't. But but People have used it for friendship as well now and to study friendship. And so they've brought in same-sex friends, a heterosexual same-sex friends, like to, especially men. She was studying friendship among men. And and the, the questions, the 36 questions, they proceed, right? They start out pretty easy and not too um, revealing, right? And then they get more and more personal as you go along. And what she found was that the, the men, when she put two men in a room to ask them to do this as friends, they were really uncomfortable. As she said, they looked like deer in the headlights. They like they cursed a little bit when <laughs> questions would get asked. Uh, I'm not sure what's allowed to be said on your podcast, but you, you know, can, it was you like can. the F word and things like yeah. that. And but then they answered the questions and they revealed quite a lot. And they all said they felt closer at the end, right? And now this was an artificial set up, but it is something we can do for sure. People have to, both people have to be willing to do it because the other way it works is that you go back and forth, right? So you answer a question, I answer a question. So it, it has to be shared. But I mean, it is definitely true that shared uh, self-disclosure, to use the psychological term, um, makes us, usually makes us feel closer to people. The other thing, I mean, there's a lot of research in how children make friends. There's a sort of very long-standing idea that is pretty straightforward, but I think applies to adults as well, which is that kids first get to be friendly with other kids by doing things together, by they're in the same class or they're on a team together or something like that. 
And then they get, there's a second stage where they share an emotional experience together. And that can be in talking about, you know, how you feel, your self-disclosure, but, or it can be the way you feel like if you're on a sports team and you win <laughs> together or something, right? There's a, there's this real bonding feeling that you get, or think about, I mean, famously people in the military who go through intense experiences together are much closer afterwards. Two of my kids did like outdoor, they spent a, a couple of months, they did semesters away in the wilderness in Colorado here in the US and went hiking and they have these intense feelings, experiences with the kids that they're with, but they come away really drawn to them. Now that is not something that you can just throw into your everyday life, but I think we can take some pieces of it and think, okay, like we should, we could look for opportunities to do things that are maybe a little bit more intense or challenging, but that if we do them well together, we might be closer in the end. I've seen that the CrossFit is people have extremely close uh, community of friendship and they get it very fast. It's the same as the military. You do something. Yeah, there you go. Great. You see some fighting gyms as well, uh, yeah. where you have to respect for each other, but you mm -hmm. do things that are really hard and you're cheering for each other. So I... At least that's what I've seen as well. Things where it's very hard or like you work extremely intense on something, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have that bond afterwards. Yeah. We, do we know why that is? Is there anything with the brain? The well, I think, so it's true that the more intense the experience, the more the memories of it are etched into your brain. It's partly also why... A lot of our experiences as adolescents, we remember more clearly and sort of viscerally. Our brain actually responded to them differently at that time in our lives. And so what, the things that feel good feel really good. And the things that feel bad feel just awful, 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 right? When you're an adolescent. But it's still true that emotion and intensity accelerates kind of everything that we're responding to. And if we're getting... If you're succeeding at it, you're getting the dopamine rush and the, the kind of like the happy hormones then that you feel like your adrenaline's going. And then the people around you who are part of that, like you share that feeling together. So it's definitely true. It's a little bit the thing of your brain is processing the experience in the same way, just like I was saying, and then watching videos, it's a slightly different parts of the brain. But I think there's something to that. I don't know. I haven't really seen the neuroscience on like why in the military people are closer, but it's something that we know is absolutely true um, mm. that those intense experiences. Are. It's also the case like with people who work in a job where they have to work all kinds of ridiculous hours and they have, the, they come through a kind of crucible together and, uh, and then they can be intensely um, bonded as well. Yeah. Lydia, what would you do if you were like moving to a new country or where you couldn't bring your friends? Or say that you had kind of gone from not living such a healthy life, mm. you've been a troublemaker or something else, and you're kind of like, mm. you needed a new circle of uh, of friends. Wow, nobody's asked me that last one. I, I I have had the experience of moving to another country and my, now I went with my husband and my kids, but we moved to Hong Kong from New York for a couple of years and I found it really hard. I found it hard to find the friends that I could relate to in, in ways that, that felt comfortable for me. I, in Brooklyn, where I live, you can throw a stone and you will hit a 10 
writers who work from home who sort of do what I do. And there's like a lot of that kind of starting in a similar place and then seeing if you can connect. And in Hong Kong, it just wasn't that way at all, especially because I was part of the expat world. And a lot of the, they were mostly the wives had followed the husbands, although there were a few husbands following their wives, but most of them were not working, partly because the rules make it hard to work, or they were working in a, a corporate job and then they were working all the time. So the ones who were not working, they spent their days doing all kinds of stuff that I didn't really have time to do because I was still working as a writer. And so I wasn't really able to spend the time to get to know them, but then the other people were. Anyway, it was hard to find the right. So I had to just keep working at it, meeting different people. And I also did try to carve out time to do the things that some of the people were doing, at least a little bit. Like and hiking turns out to be a really big thing in Hong Kong. That's one of the reasons why it's top of mind. I brought it up earlier. I didn't realize that when I got there, but the way the, the geography of Hong Kong is this like, it's like mountains drop down into the South China Sea. And so there's all these trails along the people live around the edges and, and the middle is all these trails. And so it's a great way to get exercise and it's something that people do together. So I would sometimes. And I could do this because I work for myself. I would take a morning and go and meet these women and go hiking so that I could get to know them better, even though normally I wouldn't have done that at that time of day, right? It was worth it to me to do that. So trying to sort of figure out whatever that means for you, you have to make. And then the other thing that I think happens in those kinds of situations is that you make friends with who's there and you share the bond you have, and maybe they wouldn't be people you would be friends with. If you met in another place and time, but that's okay. <laughs> it serves a purpose and you definitely benefit from having that bond. Now, your second question about trying to change your surroundings, I think is what you're talking about, right? If your friends have not been a great influence or I'm assuming like we're, you're trying to stop drinking or something and you don't want to just keep going to the same bars. It's so hard, but it is also essential. It is essential to find um, people who do other things. And I think the way to start is by looking for it, like looking for whatever that other activity is that feels healthier and there have to be some people out there doing that, right? And so you've got to you've got to go find them. You've got to, but again, you have to put yourself out there and be a little bit vulnerable about it. But it's very true that friends can be a great influence on us or not so much, right? Is there a limit on how many friends you can have? Yeah. You talked about the five, and you says it takes time, right? Yeah. Well, so there's kind of famously some science saying that like none of us can have more than about like 100, it was 150. It has to do with your brain capacity for keeping track of people. So most of us, the average in our inner circle is just four. And that can be family. It can be friends. It can be a mix. I think it's, let's say, whatever. It's like between two and eight, most of us have in that inner circle. And then we have 10 to 15 in the next circle, which maybe let's call it the first people you'd invite to your birthday party or something, right? And then you have these extended circles that get bigger. And some of us, we have different friendship styles. We have a tendency to just want to have a couple of intense one-on-one -on -one relationships or where someone like your friend whose wedding you went to, who just gathers people around them and connects people too, probably, I'm guessing. there. But there clearly is a limit both in your brain capacity and just in the amount of time you can spend. 
in a day or in your life with people. So that's why there's these, you, you can think of these concentric circles and think of the, you're going to devote the bulk of your time to the people in the inner center of the circle, right? The science about saying like that we can't, that I think it's been a little while since I looked at it. I'm pretty sure what it says is like most of us, maybe we have, we're not, you can't have more than I think 150 friends and you can't remember more than a 1500 people or something like that, like names and faces. And obviously some of us can't even do that, <laughs> but it's more that like your brain capacity is limited. But so I really do think though, one important message is that quality is more important than quantity for friendship. And that while there are a lot of benefits to having a lot of friends and getting that variety, we talked about the five people around you, you know, that one of the things though, is that like having a bench, we got, I'm big with the sports mm. stuff today. I don't know, but you know, here, so we having people you can count on if somebody else isn't available, or maybe you need someone like to talk about a work thing with, and then you need someone to talk about a parenting thing with, or you need someone to talk about like your relationship with your, your romantic partner. And you want somebody who's got some experience of that, right? Of whatever it is you're talking about. So that can be helpful, but, but to get the health benefits of friendship, you really only need, honestly, the biggest difference is between zero and one friends. And I haven't actually touched on them. I do want to make sure we include. So I said that friendship over the long haul can be as important as diet and exercise. I think I said that, um, but it affects your cardiovascular functioning, your immune system, your cognitive health, your mental health, your stress response, the way you sleep. It even affects how fast you age biologically. And uh, not surprisingly, then all of that adds up to it affecting how long you live even. So friendship on the one hand is good for all that stuff and loneliness or social isolation on the other hand is bad for it. And so, so this is why I say this is so, so, so important. But to get those health benefits, you really only need one friend. Like that will do it. That will give you the, the bang for your buck. More can be better, but it's not essential. And so I think that is the, the thing that people need to remember, especially if friendship feels hard for them. So what if someone had that one good friend and they got into a fight? Because that's another thing. <laughs> Long friendships and then suddenly people yeah, fight. Yeah, so well, that's the reason why it can be good to have a couple of people <laughs> back up. But one thing I think is important is that we don't always think about working at friendship to make it better. We want to, we tend to avoid the hard conversations Partly because one of the major things about friendship is that it's voluntary, right? And that's actually a beautiful part. And well, like you said, we can choose our friends, but we can't choose our family. But sometimes it means we walk away or we just kind of avoid the hard stuff. And so I would argue that if you think the relationship, the friendship is a really important one and a special one, that, that it's worth trying to have those harder conversations when you have a fight and not end so be honest. I mean, I suppose if you have the fight and things are not going well and you try to have the conversation, I mean, the worst thing that happens is you stay where you are, right? Because now you're still not getting along, but at least you've tried. So I do think we should think about friendship that way. But I also think that, like I said, if it's not a relationship that's going to be healthy for you, that it is important to start looking elsewhere. So if you have that one friend and they, and they, you get into a fight, well, then you're going to have to do the work of finding somebody else. 
let me just, I've been going on, but let me, this reminds me though. So some of the really important science from the evolutionary biologists was done in other species and other animals, right? I have a lot of that in the book, but famously there was this baboon called Sylvia who lived in Africa and Sylvia was really kind of a bitch. <laughs> she was not nice to the other baboons in her troop. And she really mostly hung out with her daughter, Sierra. That was her primary grooming partner. And grooming is gold for baboons and other kinds of non-human primates. And then, sadly for Sylvia, Sierra was killed by a lion, which happens when you're a baboon living in Africa, right? And what was really interesting is that all the, there were some scientists watching this troop, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't know about this. They'd been watching these animals for a very long time. They had all this information on them. So they knew what Sylvia was like. Um, and they expected her to go off and grieve all on her own and just continue to be her kind of snarky self. And she didn't. She changed. And there's a grunt that baboons give when they sort of come in peace. And that's what she started to do. She started to try to approach all these other baboons in a friendlier way. And it was surprising for the scientists. I'm sure it was surprising for the baboons as well. But this, it made the scientists ask, well, why would she be doing that? What's in it for Sylvia? Why she's lost this critical relationship and she's changing her behavior in order to build new relationships. And so that is what made them start to do this very important research that became uh, a real, a big important study that was published in Science, one of the most prestigious journals there is, in 2003. Because what they did was they essentially came up with a way of counting how often the baboons were nice to each other. And then they used that index that they'd created and they measured it against how uh, ultimately how many babies, how healthy your babies were, how many babies you had and how healthy they were. So reproductive success and how long the baboons lived. And what they found was that the baboons with the strongest positive social bonds lived longer and had more and healthier babies. And so that is what shows us that friendship is that there are real evolutionary advantages to being good at making and maintaining friends. And we suspect that Sylvia figured that out, that she knew she couldn't be entirely on her own, right? Or that that would be less good for her. And so, and that's where we started to see that the relationships among these animals actually had a lot to teach us about relationships among humans and that they helped to explain why all those health things are going on and how a some friendship that exists outside the body, how it can get inside your cells and change how you respond to a virus, say, can make you more or less susceptible to a virus. That seems incredible. That's not an obvious thing, but that is what's going on. So that's what, if you're Sylvia and you lose your friend, you're going to have to do that work. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Lydia, time is running. I'm not sure how hard of a heart stop you have. I'm good. Okay, so two more questions I would love to get mm -hmm. you for that. What is there anything you have changed in regards to your relationships after you wrote this book? Mm -hmm. I just, I try harder to show up. Like I said, I try harder. I pray. I think a lot of us have a tendency and I raise my hand guilty, especially in my sort of really busy midlife when my kids were younger and I was working hard and I'll say, oh, yes, 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 yes. Let's get together. Let's get together. And I mean it, but then I wouldn't follow through. I wouldn't, I wouldn't make the plan or I wouldn't. And sometimes you cancel on your friends. They, they would tend to be like the first thing to go after family and work and romance and whatever. And it's not that those other things are not important. Family, work, romantic partner, all 
deserve time and attention, but friends really do too. I like to say that I think this new science of friendship gives us permission to hang out with our friends and understand that we're doing something really important for ourselves. We're not just faffing off, as they say. We're not, we, I don't think we've given it the respect that it's due that, that time. And so I have tried to take that to heart and to, to make sure that I try to show up for my friends. I, I don't do it. You're never going to get it all right, but I try to do that and I try to make time and prioritize. And I will say for people who are parents, I try to do the same thing in thinking about my kids. Now my kids are 18 to 23, 18, 20, 23 now. So they're getting I try to recognize how important it is for them to spend time with their friends. And parents often are so focused on schoolwork or whatever it is. That's what we tend to talk to our kids about. And I'm trying to talk to my kids more about how to be a good friend, how to make time for friends, how to. And I think that a lot of us could do more of that for people who are parents, however old your kid is, like there's probably a way to, to understand just how important friendship is going to be in their lives and to help them be better at it, but also to recognize that maybe they should go spend time with this friend tonight and not study for this test. Yeah. I definitely believe that social relations and friends and so on is going to be one of the bigger things. I often talk about the fundamentals of health being rest, sleep, yes. uh, movement, being what you eat, nutrition, being your mindset and then your social relationships. Because yeah. those are kind of the five things that you can discuss. Light is important <laughs> as well, but like that's again, at least what I see from science as well and research being like the cornerstones. And <laughs> I really believe like you've seen like the next big thing we're going to be talking more about. And I am very much in these biohacking circles where people talk very much mm -hmm. about biology and mm -hmm. uh, tracking and testing, but a lot of them also have realized the importance of friendship. And that uh, is something that is not being looked at lightly. That it's just, ah, it's not that important. You just need to focus on movement, right? Yeah, no, this is exactly right. And I think the pandemic really helped us in this. I, I found that people, you don't know what you have till it's gone, right? <laughs> Appreciate just how important these relationships were to your day-to-day -day functioning until we couldn't have them. And so I hope that we all come out of this sort of terrible time we've been in like doing a refresh on our friendships and taking them seriously and making a plan to make sure that we have some really good ones in there. Mm. Even if we have to manage some less great relationships, let's make sure we've got a couple of good ones. And, and I just want to say too, um, in case it, it persuades people as, as much as it did me, one of my favorite statistics in all the research I did is one that's pretty well known, but there's a study at Harvard called the Adult Development Study that was went on for most of the 20th century, and they followed these men for their whole lives. And so when they got into their 80s, the ones that survived, they were able to go back and look at all kinds of like what made for that, what was the best predictor of who was healthy and happy at 80? And it wasn't your cholesterol level or your wealth or your professional success. It was how satisfied you had been with your relationships at 50. Right. And 50, of course, is that age where we're often busy <laughs> and we're not putting in the time. And I'm guessing you're maybe your listeners are younger than that, but keep it in mind. It's I, that kind of blows me away that you want to get to be you want to live a good, long, healthy life. Well, this was the number one important thing. And so that's the thing I think everybody needs to take from this is just and, and how fortunate for us because it's fun. right? <laughs> like it's not it's fun to hang out with people that you love and that are nice to you. <laughs> yeah. So. So Lydia, if you had to give a short, concrete advice for the people that 
um, might have might be struggling a little bit with the friendships and finding them and constantly getting into a fight. I would recommend them read your book. I would recommend them um, how to win friends and talk to anyone. Or how to win friends and influence people, which is a classic. The title sounds uh, awful because it sounds so manipulative. But when you listen to the book, it's very much about how to be a good human being and treat mm. other people well. It's mm-hmm. not really about manipulation, at least in my point of view. It's very much about if your parents didn't teach you really well, how do you show up? And you might not have learned it. And then there's another book called How to Talk to Anyone, which is very concrete mm. things when you meet people. Are there any mm-hmm. other books or like short, concrete advice you would say? A psychologist can also be good to get <laughs> to talk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're, I, I don't know that I could list other books. I think that's a good start. But I would say, listen, <laughs> do more listening. Almost all of us could do more listening. And being a good listener is something that is so underrated and so important in developing relationships and really listening, like not waiting until it's your turn to talk about your thing, right? Which is what a lot of us do in conversation. And so I guess that's my like shortest piece of advice is listen and notice what's going on with other people and try to show up and just call your friends. That's not really for the people who are struggling because they got to make the friends. But the rest of us, if you've got those friends, pick up the phone and call them. I think that's a brilliant advice. I try to uh, make it a habit. I wrote a book on habits as well. Uh-huh. Uh, the habit of when I'm cleaning or other things or in transportation, that's a time when I have a possibility to connect. I might be busy yeah. with work and so on, but I have a possibility to call people and just mm-hmm. be like, hey, how are you doing? I do the exact same thing when I'm driving. And I, in my life, like I don't drive every day because I'm not commuting and stuff. I work from home. But when I have these sort of couple of hour long drives, I just go through and I call a whole bunch of people. And that's what I do. I put it on the speakerphone as a car. And it's a joke. They think it's funny now. They always know I'm in the car. <laughs> like, oh, where, are you, where are you going? Right. But it's exactly that. It's like you got to build into your life the ways of staying connected with people. You got to hmm. find the things like, and I know you said transactional, but for some people, it really works to actually put it in their calendar to say, I'm going to call so-and-so, or they go through their list and say, who didn't I, who haven't I not seen? Who so I have I a list. Yeah. Do you have a, a list? list of, so um, some people say I'm very structured, but I have a <laughs> list of, um, so of my top friends. And then I make yeah. sure that I call the different ones and I don't, so this is a person that I need to call. And I, I take each year and I try to reevaluate how much time do I have? Who are the ones that I want to pencil something in with? Um, there you go. So yeah. And I mean, it works, right? It does. it does work. It does keep you connected and it keeps you refreshing and thinking about who's in your life and why. And uh, I think that's great. And it does, it takes some effort, but it's definitely worth it. Like one of my good friends, another Mark, I have a lot of Marks mm-hmm. in my life actually, mm-hmm. that I always had such a good time with. I studied with him and mm-hmm. I realized like, I would love to see him more. So I right. like, but my yearly, when I look at what I want to do, I was like, I want to try and find a weekly activity that I can do with him. So I called him and be like, hey, Mike, I would love to see you more. Yeah. What can we do? You want to go for Mm -hmm. like morning uh, runs or sauna or just anything we could figure out? And and, and yeah, we managed to to do that. And then I. That's great. All right. That's great. Yeah, I know. That's perfect. That's exactly right. Being intentional about it is really what it's, what this is about and finding, finding those ways. And I also feel like if you have limited time, there's still, you can send like a funny text that makes, that's a joke that makes somebody laugh. And you make somebody laugh, there's like a positive connection that's established. And that doesn't take you that much time. 
but you've still connected and you can say even I'm, I don't have time this week, but I'm thinking of you and I, or this thing, whatever. And so even little things like that make a difference and they help. That's the glue that keeps you connected to people. Yeah. Lydia, where can people find out more about you? I'll make sure to put all the links in the show notes. Yeah. So my website, LydiaDenworth.com is pretty much the center of everything. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Lydia Denworth and my books are available pretty much wherever books are sold. And yeah, I think that's probably it. Fantastic. I always ask at the end, what are three or one to three advice you would give about how to live a happy, healthy, and meaningful life? I think you said hmm. a lot of gold in this episode, but if you had to sum up, maximum three. Right. One okay. Two. Well, prioritize your relationships. Sleep. <laughs> With you on the sleep. I mean, we haven't talked about that, but, and, oh gosh, I should, I guess I should have thought about this earlier. Uh, I, I think living in the moment a little bit more is one of them is because I think that actually helps with your friends too, is like recognizing that not worrying as much about what's coming and saying, okay, this is the moment and I'm going to do this now. And this is important today and now. So I don't know if that's really my best advice, but that's what comes to mind. So prioritize your friendships, get some sleep and then live in the moment a little bit more. It's what I'm trying to teach myself to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's it. I want to work, um, just mention before we end as well, the mm. book that you wrote, which is called Toxic Truth, A Scientist, yeah. A Doctor, and The Battle Over Lead. 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 Mm-hmm. And it's, I talked to a lot of people on the podcast, which is about something being told like this can never be cured, or this disease and so on. Mm. And this is a book that I would love to do a full episode on as well. Um, so sure. Uh, Welcome back. <laughs> So that's a recommendation as well for the listeners. Um, if you're curious, it is. Yeah, no, it's one of the great public health success stories. Is how we got rid of lead. Not entirely. No. There's still some problems, but it's an amazing story. And we're that. having for sure many more things in our society that we're starting to see where whistleblowers are coming out about something health-wise that we should change. Yeah, I think this yeah. is. Uh, and I, I think that book. I mean, I, obviously, I'm gonna sell it here, but what the the case study of lead is really an example of of a lot of other things that we're dealing with in our environment now about the need to think ahead and to look at the effect that something's having and it was so even if you think you're not that interested in lead there's a lot to learn from that story i think that applies to everything it applies to climate change it applies to how we've approached the pandemic it applies to the uncertainties of science and of the world but like how we need to think about that and make the best decisions we can make as we go along. Yeah. So that's definitely a recommendation as well for someone listening, but I'll make sure to put it all in the show notes. So Okay, sure. great. Yeah. If you've been listening to the episode and you thought, okay, this is pretty interesting. I want to get closer into friendships. Make sure to read the book. And if you're more curious about like how we're actually figuring out some things that we've been putting into our body or out into the environment, then that book, Toxic Truth, is also a good uh, mm-hmm. case to understand that. Mm-hmm. And then I'll put notes to uh, your website and so on, Lydia. Thank Great. you so much for, uh, for being here. Thank sure. you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yep, this was fun. Thanks so much. Call your friends. <laughs> I was. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. 
thank you again and have a wonderful day.